Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen, just as if he knew what he was doing. I'm the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked to the cradle to rhythm and blues. Guy sitting over there is our fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. And I'm not imaginary. No, I am the imaginary Burl Bear. Uh, welcome to True Crime Uncensored, the world's longest running and most aggravating true crime radio program. Mm. That's our official slogan. <laughs> Got a cough and a carload. Yeah, we've been doing this show uh, going on 12 years now. Ah. Time goes by so quickly when you're old. It seems like a lifetime. Well, yeah, most people think it's been forever. Yeah. Well, it has been. Insufferable. I'm a well-known has-been, as a matter of fact. <laughs> our friend, uh, big fan of the show, uh, Layer Cake uh, New York, ah. Sean Sullivan, the famous artiste, pop culture artiste, pop artist. <laughs> I look on his uh, Instagram last night. And what do I see? I see a documentary film crew documenting Punch in New York pointing out the scenes of his crimes. Oh, here's where I did my this heist. <laughs> and here's... And I go, wow, this is really something. Why aren't I there? And uh, Sean says, it's epic. Sean's producing a documentary about Punch and his crimes to tie in with the brilliant book uh, written by Burl Bear with help from Punch that comes out this year called Stealing Manhattan. Mm. Mm, good title. Actually, it's w- w- the first of three interrelated volumes. Ah. It was a series called American Panther. And uh, each book covers a, a particular, so it's a stage of Punch's dynamic career. <laughs> you spent a lot of time in this book uh, on his father, don't you? Yes, yes. We start off with his dad. And uh, his dad's various sexual conquests <laughs> ah, and wives until he uh, he settles on uh, the beautiful and talented 18-year-old. <laughs> he was a little bit older than, uh, than she. She's still gorgeous, by the way, if she's listening. You're still gorgeous. <laughs> she is, actually. Got to meet her when I went back to Florida. Uh, Punch and his mom flew me back there to meet them in person. Wow. And uh, it was quite a treat because I landed at the, the airport in Florida. Were you still on the plane? Well, it was a, no, I, I got I off know. and flew the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to endanger my career bending over a hot stove either. Anyway, I get off the plane, and I'm about the last person off the plane going to the luggage area. And there is this tall, bearded, criminal-looking gentleman <laughs> who enthusiastically embraces me, drags me off to a casino... Where uh, he's been banned from. <laughs> we talked about that. Yeah, week. and uh, he promptly wins all sorts of money, which he has to pretend that I won. He's, the guy is blessed. He's one of these people that always wins. I mean, I went to various casinos with him. He'd always go to the high limit room, and he'd always win. And he won over $1.3 million, what, two, three years in a row at the Hard Rock Casino in Florida. So that's why they kicked him out. 
<laughs> okay. That's one of the reasons. We get into we'll get into the other reasons in volume three. But <laughs> I see. But uh, volume one, Stealing Manhattan, coming this year. Speaking of books that I often do, especially my own. Yes, yes. I was reading the introduction to Betrayal in Blue by Burl Bear, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., and Ken Urell. True story of the uh, uh, scandal that rocked the NYPD. And I, I had to compliment myself. And not only is it brilliantly written, <laughs> thanks to uh, Frank, of course, but I say at the, at the end of the introduction, say, after reading this book, you have to promise that you won't say or do anything to hurt our feelings. <laughs> we are dewy-eyed innocents whose only joy in life is seeing you happy. Oh, isn't that sweet? Wow. Yeah. Excuse me, but I just, I just <laughs> tasted a hot dog I had a week ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's enough to make you upchuck. Some people take it seriously. Mm. You know, there, there was a lot of great books uh, that came out in, in uh, true crime books that came out in 2019. We were very fortunate to have the authors of those books on our award-winning true crime radio program. Wow. And Did we want an award? Yes. Didn't you know that? Well, was there an award of the state? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the award of the court. Uh, no, we won the... There used to be a, uh, a great true crime blog called In Cold Blog by the late, great Corey Mitchell. Uh-huh. And uh, they had a, a contest on... What is the best true crime podcast radio show in America? And I stacked the deck, man. I had everybody, everybody I ever worked with on radio vote for us. So we won. Enter as often as you like. Yes. Uh, the Detective Award from In Cold Blonde, which was very nice to have. Well, Corey sadly passed away. Uh, well, does, does anyone pass away unsadly? Perhaps. I think there was a big cry of relief when Hitler died. <laughs> well, you know, maybe he was in Argentina. I was just going to say that. You beat me to it. Who knows? You know, I had heard that from people who had been in Argentina who were of that generation who said, Hitler didn't die in that bunker. He's in Argentina. Saw him. I know Hitler when I see him. You know, he was at the 7-Eleven or whatever. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, there was a documentary on History Channel on... Right. When they found out that that body in the bunker not only wasn't Hitler, it wasn't even a guy. Right. Uh, and then they started doing the research and, yeah, he was down in Argentina living it up, laughing it up, and just for fun having a chicken race on water skis. And, uh, you know, knew what he was doing. I don't know where the hell I was going with this. But, uh, oh, yeah, Ke um, Corey Mitchell. Yep. Great true crime author. Great guy. Uh, he got me involved with the uh, uh, Horror Film Festival. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And we met that fascinatingly interesting person. Yes, I did. With the... Uh... Uh, no, I got to meet uh, uh, Goretta Goretta, the actress who was in Demons and Rats. And uh, ah. oh, she's Screen great. Point. She lives here. Now, I don't mean in, in Matt's uh, house, but I mean... In L.A. In L.A. Yeah. But speaking of conspiracy theories uh, there, we had somebody on uh, the show this year. Yeah. Uh, Steve Hodell. Oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, and he's convinced that his father murdered the Black Dahlia. I think he's convinced more than any... He's not only convinced, but I think the prosecutors are convinced that if he, the guy was alive today... They'd prosecute They'd him. prosecute him, yeah. yeah. That pretty much nailed that one down. Now the question is, Jack the Ripper. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you know, how many different theories? And we had we had somebody on in the past who was looking at art. Oh yeah, Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, Vincent Van Gogh was uh, involved in some manner. And if you looked at some of his paintings, especially if you dropped acid first, right, you could see the <laughs> the murder scenes were hidden inside his paintings. Yeah, I think that guy's bat, uh, nuts. Uh, batshit crazy. Yeah, that was kind of the, well. He's not crazy. He just came up with an interesting theory. Oh, there, there we had one who thought a woman. Yeah, I really the... like that. Yeah. Now everyone derided me for enjoying that so much, but I thought that was really a cool book. And that was Neil O'Gara, I believe. <laughs> You're going to be all right or you're going to die on us here? I'm I don't gonna... need any more co-hosts dying on me. Uh, I may keel over, but, you know, yeah. an ambulance will be here and I'll lose more money. <laughs> I'm still paying off the... Uh, hello? I'm still paying off the ambulance from uh, when I went up to Seattle. Yeah, when I when I fell, when I fell uh, and smacked my cranium. Yeah, that explains a lot. Uh, yeah, it was 1585 for the ride. Really? Yeah. That's an... Ex what, what was it, a limo? Uh no, but it was it was interesting. Um, we have like a sun rooftop. <laughs> no, but they you know they you know they cart me into the into the uh, ambulance and hook me up to all kinds of stuff. Right. And then the guy in the back with me says to the driver, "Where are we going?" And the driver says, "Let me check." And then I pipe up and said, "Hey, if you don't know where you're going, take me to Kaiser Pan City and save me some cash." Right. And they looked at each other and go, "What?" I said, well, if you take me, you know, to the one around the corner, it's going to cost me a fortune. Right. And Kaiser will only pay a portion of it. That's true. I know that. You know that. <laughs> Been so, there, done but that. then you, you know, since I'm not going in an, in an imminent danger of croaking on you, yeah, whisk me over to Kaiser Pan City, and the guy gets on the radio, checks it out. Well, they're accepting, and mm. off we went. Yeah, you were lucky. Uh, when, I, when I had the ambulance cart me away here in the uh, great Los Angeles area, they, they, uh, they took me to uh, Henry Mayo. Right. And I was supposed to have emergency. That was on a Friday night. Emergency surgery Monday morning. But between Friday night and Monday morning, I got blood poisoning and pneumonia. So I spent the next week on fentanyl and morphine, which was rather entertaining. <sighs> <laughs> but didn't do anything to uh, help your yeah. blood poisoning. So, yeah, so uh, Kaiser uh, took me out of there and took me down to uh, Kaiser Sunset. Right, for, uh, I'm a Sunset baby. Yeah, you're a Sunset baby? Yes, I was born in Kaiser Sunset. Well, how about baby, You know, there's a whole host of baby boomers that was born, you know, in the late, you know, middle to late 50s. Yes, I, w I was born in 47. Yeah, 57. And so, uh, yeah, so we're called, we're just Sunset babies. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, Captain. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, Jeff Mudgett also wrote uh, a book about uh, his uh, grandfather <laughs> being a serial killer. Someone got upset. Either people get upset about true crime books. How dare you? Yeah, really. How dare? How, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? We had some great people on. I can get my glasses here. But Mark uh, Boyer, our fact checker, did a wonderful thing. He put together for us today. Oh, these are someone else's glasses, I think. Either that or my glasses are filthy. Oh, which probably both. Yep. <laughs> There's somebody's glasses, they're filthy. And I think they're mine. Uh, of the, uh, the guests we've had in 2019 and the books that they... That they, uh, it did, it's not in, in, uh, in order. 
No, it's just, you know, whatever whatever was on my hard drive. But uh, if, if you bought every book that we talked about... The authors would be very happy. Yes, that you would have bought 48 books from us, not from us, but because of us, in 2019. Well, there were, there were a handful of guests that had no book to... Uh, yeah. Like, we had, we had yeah. somebody on who was talking about... About what? The hell was that? That was no while. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, ab abductions. Oh, well, well, yeah. And so there really wasn't a book attached to it. It was just more of a discussion of the material. Well, we had Kentucky Bloodbath by Kevin Sullivan. You know, of all the shows, I mean, we, uh, we know, you know how many people download the shows like Anchor FM or iTunes or whatever. Right. Interesting what the most popular shows are, the ones that have, like, you know, tens of thousands, millions of downloads, uh -huh. or at least four or five or six thousand. That aren't relatives. <laughs> yeah. Although the, the show I did with my brother uh, gets a lot of downloads, because I think he d downloads it every day. Yeah, too. but you, know, you, under, you understand that your brother is actually famous and talented. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so is your nephew. Yeah, we had him on, too. Yes, Both of them. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Sullivan's uh, Ted Bundy. Anytime he comes on talking about Ted Bundy, bam, big step. The one that's really surprised me, though, that has huge number of downloads is Heart Blown Open, our interview with uh, Dennis, uh, what's it, what's his last name? Uh, the Buddhist, the guy who used to sell acid, and he's now he's a Buddhist monk. And it took him about half the program to get what we were doing. And then he really loosened up. It was very yes. funny the last half hour. First, the first half hour, he wondered, what the hell the hell did I get on this radio show? Well, and one of the things that, that, I, that I do, unfortunately, uh, in preparation for this uh, silliness, is I seek out the guest and other interviews they have done. Right. And then I listen to those other interviews looking for questions not followed up on, items that might be interesting to talk about, even though he's already answered it, that kind of thing. And I listen to all of these other podcasts. Right. You know, we got, you know, you got Dan Zapanski's and, and uh, Alan Warren's yeah, show. Yeah, there's a lot of them out there. There's a couple of, us, a mother and daughter team. That does I've had those. <laughs> yes, you have, but not, and not interviewing you. Oh, that's true right. crime. I know, I get kind of, I get grabbed, uh, Dan Zapanski's interviews will get me sucked in for a whole 90 minutes. Uh, I'm going to be on Dan Zapansky's show. He's doing a career retrospective on me. Wow. You have a career? Yeah. Apparently, my career is over. I think this is like my greatest hits. He wants me to recap my entire Ooh. true crime career. Wow. Let's see. Uh, on his program. Mom Which, said kill. Yes, all of those. Counterfeit uh, resurrection of Phil. Yeah. All that stuff. I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse. Just right. Uh, well, boy, you got that right. That's, that's a line from the book. And he actually said that. Uh, Anthony Spinner was the... Uh, and he was stoned out of his mind. He, uh, Anthony Spinner, the TV uh, director, producer guy, who uh, had done some work on Return of the Saint, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. I went to his office uh, to pitch him on Man Overboard. The book hadn't come out yet, but I was telling the story. Before I could meet with him, he was out in his car smoking dope. And he had a sweater on, and he came back in, and that sweater was totally saturated with pot smoke. And so I'm sitting there, oh, <laughs> getting altered, sniffing his sweater. May I lick your sweater? <laughs> and uh, so I said to Phil, I said, uh, 
one of the people said, "Can can we uh, can we make uh, uh, Barb's uh, his wife's uh, brother a private eye?" And all these things they wanted to change to make it exactly the same as every other story you've ever seen on TV. As opposed to the truth, which <laughs> is just as interesting as anything else. <laughs> well, then again, people <clears throat> accused me of writing a book that's a pack of lies. To which I respond, if it's a pack of lies, at least the lies are well packaged. <laughs> which I think was an appropriate response. I was, I was hawking that book like a vegematic salesman at the Mid-Atlantic Mystery Conference. And... So he says, I, 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 I can't buy this book. I said, why, why is that? Is it financially strapped? He says, no, no, I, I only buy fiction, and yours is true crime. I said, oh, that's okay. I said, it's a pack of lies. <laughs> Go ahead, it's fiction. Say that again. <laughs> ah, he doesn't like nonfiction. Yeah, no. only likes fiction. Well, then he should go back to Truman Capote. Yes. There you go. A, now, Truman Capote did more damage... <laughs> To true crime than any author in history. But then you turn it around. Name a book in the true crime genre that's bad. I don't really consider that a true crime book. But in but most people do. The uneducated do. And it was a, it is a tremendous book. It is a tremendous book. It's fabulous, right? He was madly in love with. Uh, the, and then you know, and then his yeah. one of his best friends wrote one of my absolute favorite novels. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird. That's the only book she wrote. And uh, didn't she write the sequel? It's not a sequel. It's or a follow-up. It's actually an early draft where uh, oh. where the, the protagonist, the attorney guy, played by Gregory Peck in the movie. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, uh, um, Erotica. No, uh, Addison Fitch. Addison Fitch. Addison. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is a racist ass a in great uh, that movie. version. Yeah. Just a great movie. But, you know, well, you know. And it, it follows the book. Yeah, but they kill off you know, in the second one. They kill off the the border that that stays with them at the end. Well, that's not very polite. No, and everyone was really pissed. The other the other true crime, so-called true crime book that was very controversial that wasn't a true crime book either was Sleepers by Lorenzo Cartera. In fact, seven true crime authors, including my dear dear friend and mentor Jack Olson, who was probably the greatest true crime wasn't author. He, wasn't he on the old Superman? Awesome, Jimmy no, that's Olson. Jimmy Olson. Oh, Superman's pal. Uh, Jack Olson and Gary King and uh, uh, a bunch of other guys all complained to the publisher of uh, Sleepers. It's also very made a very good movie with Dustin Hoffman and with Robert De Niro. And, um, and that wasn't... Uh, is, was that one with Robin Williams? No. That's a different one where, they, where he wakes everyone up. No, that's uh, Awakening. Ah, yeah. yeah. That's a true story. But, no, uh, and uh, in this one, uh, they said, this isn't a true story. <laughs> this, this, you know, you can check it out. No, this isn't a true story. It's fiction. Uh, so when they uh, did the movie, and they said, instead of saying based on the true crime, you know, best-selling true crime book by Lorenzo Cartera, it said, based on the controversial book. <laughs> ah. Because, well, you uh, know. Gonna spin it just right. It was a great book, good movie, but it wasn't a true story. But that's that's okay. It so was vastly entertaining. We talked uh, we talked about a uh, uh, a young lady who was spying for, J for Japan in World War Two. That's right. That uh, Barbara Casey was the guest that day, and I wasn't here. I missed even almost any time Barbara's been on the show. I haven't been here. Yeah, well, I, I asked what she was wearing for you. Yeah, thank you very You're much. You're very welcome.
Of course, uh, I was looking to see who who has been on our show this past year more than anybody, and it's kind of a toss-up between Alan Warren and Punch. Well, I consider Punch. I mean, he's he's just here to help. <laughs> he's a he's a true crime uh, co-author and criminal, right. well, ex-criminal, retired criminal mastermind. And there's a great article about him in, uh, well, in addition to the one that was in Vanity Fair recently, uh, in the UK, there's a magazine called Real Crime, and Seth Perante, who's been on our show, wrote a fabulous article about Punch and his life, fully illustrated and beautifully done. And uh, the point is, the world's greatest safe cracker. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Even though he burned down a building once by accident. <laughs> that's... <laughs> It looks like uh, Alan Warren has been on it three times this year. Oh, at least uh, he did Drinks, Dinner, and Death. You know, the fascinating thing about Alan Warren's books is I'm going to praise Alan Warren, who also does the House of Mystery podcast. Yes, he does. Is uh, he does something very unusual, and that is he relates a lot of what's going on in the book to his own life, his own life experiences and challenges. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, very high-functioning uh, autistic and very aware of these peculiarities of autism. And, uh, of course, everyone in his books is also a gay killer, which makes me worry that maybe Alan is trying to tell us something. Uh, <laughs> I don't what? mean that he's gay. I mean that he's a killer, mm-hmm. in addition to being... You know, well, I don't think he is. You know, you know, the duality of man, the yeah. onion thing. Yeah. Confessions of murder. That was another one. That Alan did. He did a lot. Also, Dennis Griffin's been on the show a lot. Did Family Business. Remember that one? That was a good book, too. Yes, the uh, discussion of uh, the mob families. Yeah, well, oh, Murder in McHenry by Paul Scharf. If you don't know that one, buy it, read it, believe it. That was a crime that was solved here on our show and in a book by uh, uh, Denny Griffith <coughs> on, who, on who, killed, uh, who killed his father. And uh, it was solved by, uh, actually, Paul Collado kind of solved that one. I met Paul. Uh, He's a psychopath. (laughs) I mean, he's a killer. I mean, he was a a mob hitman. And uh, he he got to skate, I think he turned state's evidence or something. Whatever it was, uh, he got to be a consultant on, uh, what was it, Casino? Was that the film? Possibly. It's the one where they shoot the guy and the guy starts to walk away after he's been shot and you go, where are you going, jerk off? You know, you're dead. He was actually the guy. <laughs> he was there at the time and he got to be a consultant on that scene. I think mm-hmm. be in that scene. But uh, I met him in Vegas for the mob sit-down. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever met psychopaths who are real hardcore sociopaths where you look into their eyes and you go, ooh. <laughs> and I was, and I asked him, I said, uh, pardon me, sir, <laughs> you feel bad about any of the people you killed? Nope. 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 Y'all had it coming. Uh, the interesting uh, side to that, if you remember in one of the opening scenes of Pulp Fiction, yeah, uh, our two protagonists, uh, the hitmen, uh, John Travolta and... Um, and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, and so they get to the, they get to the uh, room... And then Jackson says, "Come with me. We're too early. Come with me." And they're talking. About, they're talking about the foot massages. Right, right. I give it a you know a million, and they all meant something. Blah 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 blah. 
And then, you know, after the discussion, Samuel says, okay, let's go get back in character. And it, it's, it's an interesting aside to Tarantino's writing that they're comp- compartmentalizing yeah. their job from their life. Because in their life, they're just normal people. But then they, their job is to go and kill. All right, it's time to go and be, be hit. Go, go to work. Yeah, it's time to pick up the refuse. Yeah. And let's go find... Well, see, that, that is actually what does transpire. Is it, uh, well, well, this is why I brought the point up. I yeah. think it was a fascinating insight that probably <clears throat> 99% of the population didn't notice. Well, it is Or didn't the, intellectualize what it was well, what It's like was the, the famous story of Ted Bundy. And Anne Rule when she <coughs> takes him to the dance. Right, and he couldn't deal with it. No, because she's going, Ted, see that lovely girl over there? You should ask her to dance. Go, right. you know. And she looked exactly like all of his victims. Well, you know, she she said, um, uh, by, um, she's got two personalities. You know, one that's, you know, got all these sexual fantasies with vampires. Who's that? Anne Rule. Does she have sexual fantasies well, with vampires? Possibly. Well, possibly. <laughs> She's dead now. I always don't talk ill of the dead. Oh. She was very nice. She bought me lunch in New York. Ooh, mommy. That's when she told me the story about her taking Ted. Because I asked her, I said, which was the real Ted? You talk about, she would talk about Ted with his great affection. Oh, I remember when Ted and I did this and Ted did that. And I go, and, and, and beep, hold it. <laughs> you know, wait a second, time out. Which was the real Ted? <clears throat> the one that you liked so well, your dear friend Ted? Or was it the one who's uh murdering women and then having sex with their dead bodies. Because, oh, it's the, the murdering one. The one that, that was the... You know what's so fascinating is that she had that book contract to write a book about that serial killer who turned out to be her friend. And who is the first person she tells when she gets the contract? is Ted. Ted. And she says, Ted, guess what? I have a contract to write a book on this killer if they ever catch him. <laughs> and if they catch him, I get to do the the book. It was a great contract and everything. Wow, I'm real happy for you, Ann. When he gets arrested, does he call his lawyer? <laughs> call Dan. Call Dan. I mean, what are the odds of that? That's that book, A Stranger Beside Me. Didn't your daughter have something to do with the serial killer? Oh, yeah, my daughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's often contagious. We're both dying. I already did, thank you, twice. But I'm still here. I had to come back to the radio show. <laughs> mm, well, you know, you know, third time's the charm. Uh, yeah, my daughter uh, was standing in line to see an interview with a vampire with uh, the guy who turned out to be the Green River Killer. <laughs> and the thing set. is, they, that was their running joke. She and her friend were standing in line, and this guy was giving them the creeps and standing behind him. And they had this running joke that he was the Green River Killer. Sure enough, he was. The other weird one is... Uh, she meets this fellow over here some conversation that she's having and he goes wow this young lady is very smart knows the business and he offers her a job just come to uh, what was it Portland I guess someplace and on such and such a date and I really want to interview because I think you'd be perfect uh, working in, in our company so she calls on the day she's supposed to call and the uh, secretary says uh in fact, she talked to the guy on the phone at great length before coming in. She comes in, and, and the, uh, they tell her, no, uh, there's been a kidnapping, and uh, 
we won't be interviewing or hiring you. So what, what was he kidnapped? No, he did the kidnapping. Turns out when my daughter was talking to him on the phone, he had his kid handcuffed to the bed. Like, yeah. So <laughs> she has <coughs> great luck that way. Uh, what was it? Oh, oh, uh, Anthony M. DiStefano, the great guy, the guy who writes all these great mob books. He also is an expert on human trafficking. We had him on this year. Twice. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, he did Gotti's Boys. Remember they called Gotti the Teflon Don? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it take, uh, takes you inside Gotti's inner circle to reveal the dark hearts and violent deeds of the most remorseless and cold-blooded characters in organized crime. Ooh. Men so vicious, even the other mafia families were terrified of them. Gotti's Boys. A killer lineup of the crime-hardened mob soldiers who killed as their ruthless leader's merciless bidding. Guys, it sounds like a real pulp masterpiece. That's a quite very good book. All of Anthony's books are very, very good. Kind of blew his mind. I gave him an advanced copy of Stealing Manhattan, which has a story in there of John Gotti wanting to do a diamond heist. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and uh, Punch's dad plan out this... Uh, this incredible uh, diamond heist, really a, a really a mind-blowing approach to doing this giant heist. And Gotti shows up with a guy who's supposed to be uh, an alarm expert. And Alexander, uh, Alexander, the guy, uh, who gets him into the building, uh, who worked for Mr. Stan, takes one look at this guy. Alexander Monday? No. <laughs> takes one look at this guy that uh, Gotti brought with him. He goes, that's a cop. And it was. It was the Joe Coffey undercover cop. Ah. Guy who rest, actually arrested Gotti three times. <laughs> but, but here he comes uh, on Gotti's payroll to help with this heist. And instead of cutting the alarm wires, he cut off all the telephone lines to the federal building. <laughs> Caused total chaos. And uh, Gotti had to call in some garbage trucks to block the streets so they could get away. <laughs> so, and, and Anthony says to me, he calls me out of phone, goes, are you sure this is true? I said, yeah, yeah, I got this verified by, you know, a variety of sources. I said, yeah, this is absolutely a true story. I never heard of Gotti being interested in diamond ties. I said, well, can't figure that at the top of the pinnacle of criminals, the most admired is the gem heist mastermind. It's victimless crime, make a fortune, everybody lives happily ever after, no one gets hurt. Except the insurance companies. But the insurance companies were in bed with the mob, and the mob would tell them who to pay. So everyone was in on it. In fact, the feds were investigating the insurance companies because they were paying out all this money to these people being robbed. And they thought maybe it was someone inside the insurance company was doing it. Yeah, they were all in on it. Safe, the safe manufacturing company, the security company, everybody. Oh, what a great idea. We have Leonard Bushell. Now, Leonard's uh, Bushell, former drug smuggler, and now uh, the head guy of the Real Recovery Film Festivals, uh, Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, his show is one of the most downloaded. Actually, I believe it's Kevin Sullivan, Ted Bundy's shows are like number one. Uh, then uh, Dennis Kelly, The Heart Blown Open, The Buddhist Monk. Mm-hmm. His show is like huge. He must have a lot of fans. Uh, Frank C. Gerardo's uh book. His appearance on his book Burned. That's one of the... <coughs> boy, are you going to live through this? Another one of our... Uh, no. The, 
uh, big books, uh, or shows that gets downloaded tons. And then Leonard, Leonard's book, and not Leonard's book, Leonard's interview, is one of the uh, the top ones. And for quite a while, Gary Nassif, How Rock and Roll Changed Las Vegas, was one of our biggest downloads for quite a while. Wow. Goes to show. Survival. Uh, Benny Curdo, remember that interview? His dad used to beat the crap out of him well, and I'm, screw him I, in the I, butt. I, I wanted to talk about a um, a theme that that particular show highlights. Yes, and that's and that's the um, the amount of uh, pedophilia victims and perpetrators that we talk about on the show. A lot. And this particular interview you're referring to was very difficult to get through because you know our guest was. Well, he broke down in tears a yeah. few times during the interview. Yes, because you know the the stuff is just very traumatic. And what is so bizarre about that story is here his father who was an alcoholic, uh, pedophilic uh, jerk, who's raping his own son, having all of his buddies rape his son, and he's telling the kid, "You've got to become a champion boxer. <laughs> you got to be a champion boxer." The kid becomes a world champion boxer. And punches his dad out. I guess his dad never messed with him after a you know certain point. But I mean that's so strange that his dad instilled in him what would be his salvation. Really peculiar. Now in, in uh, so how, how go ahead? How do you break? How does one break the cycle of violence? Boy, that's a good question. I had to wow. do that as I as I do. Uh, should I take note that I, yeah. I asked a good question? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. My book, which, of course, you should all buy, called uh, Headshot, mm. uh, has a lot of multi-generational incest and peppermints <laughs> in it. Uh, well, I, that, no, no, it's, not, well, it's from the 60s, wasn't it? Uh, the, well, they had nine kids, and of the nine kids, uh, almost all of them was either a child molester or married a child molester or a murderer or married a murderer or dated one or wanted to be one when they grew up. And I originally had a line in the book that said that you couldn't, that you needed like charts and graphs to keep track of who was sleeping with who in the family. <laughs> and they had me take that out because it uh, impugned other members of the family who didn't have anything to do with the murder story that I was telling. And uh, as interesting is that I did extensive interviews with uh, two of the brothers in that family. They gave me great material. And then at the last minute, they wanted money. And I said, we don't have a budget to pay the author, let alone pay you. And they said, well, then we won't sign off on, on our interviews if we don't pay. Their elder sister, who had become a counselor for people who afflicted in the manner that she was growing up, got hold of me and said, anything they said, you can attribute to me. She was great. Wow. That rescue, boy, I rescued because there's a lot of material in that book that uh, I wouldn't have been able to use if she hadn't stepped forward and said, do that. So, but you didn't answer the question. Is how do you break the cycle? Yeah. Good question. Because what you admire most about your parenting, if you're a parent, is what you admire most about your own parents' <laughs> parenting. And what you didn't like about yours is you didn't like about theirs. Well, you know, that really takes a lot of skill. Because, you know, as a child, you go, I'm never going to do that to my child. And then they do. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's almost like an imprinted thing, like ducks. Uh, there was a, a very famous uh, psychologist named Bradshaw, and he had a, uh, a theory or a, a philosophy uh, called um, 
Coming Home. And it was a set, it essentially, uh, your subconscious gets hardwired. And it, and it responds to stimuli outside of your consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the only way to break the cycle is to get inside your subconscious and rewrite the scripts. Not this is it's not dissimilar to the to the core foundations of Dianetics that L. Ron Hubbard started. Yeah. Right. And that got turned into a gigantic money Hoax. maker <laughs> fake religion. Yeah. Yeah, you want the primordial clam, that's why you can't cry. <clears throat> no, yeah, well but the basic concept is that you have uh, you have a a, a ref- a, a, a reflex reaction to stimuli, mm-hmm. and you are not in control of those actions right. when they occur. We were just discussing something similar to this with Lori Downey Jr. before the show today. Yeah. Uh, where you get triggered on something, and you either have a panic attack or an anxiety attack, or right. you have some sort of response to it. And so, and Bradshaw tries to teach techniques of inner reflection, allowing you to step outside your conscious, get into your subconscious, look at the scripts and how you respond to them, mm-hmm. and then since you know what the script is ahead of time, you have already the rewrite for it yeah. to try and change the, well, the, the anger the, response to a positive. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> the guy who started what's now called Recovery International. <coughs> you alright? Can be okay? No. Uh, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy, in, in essence. And that is, there are certain characteristics of people who have uh, boundary issues or have, uh, have been in traumatic, had traumatic situations. Right. And they have these responses, automatic, you know, like just like you were saying. And that is the ability to spot or to recognize in yourself when you're having those. Is my imagination on fire? Am I catastrophizing this? You know, uh, nothing will ever change. This your universal. It'll never get any better. All these things. When you could recognize in yourself, then what the choice of the antidote to that is to go. No, this is actually a perfectly average response to the situation. <laughs> you know, it's very average or kind of average. It's not unique. And it, um, it's interesting that from a poker player's perspective. And you do play poker. Oh yes. One of the things that it truly skilled player has to be able to do is to maintain subjective. To look at... Objective or subjective? uh, Objective. You have to look at how you play, what you've done, and look at it in a manner that doesn't include ego. Okay, that was wrong, and this is why, and this is how you fix it. And if you can't break the cycle of poor play or the mistakes that you make, then you're never going to be a winner. And, uh-huh. it, and it's the same thing with other portions of your life. Yeah, if you keep doing the same wrong thing, keep doing the same thing expecting different results. You're nuts. You're nuts, yeah. I've I mean, been uh, nuts plenty of times. When uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, I was at the bike every Sunday to listen to uh, Mike Carroll, the mad genius of poker. Ah. Um. And he would, he would, they would give poker seminars. He would talk about how to play, and he would have guests. Some of the more, the at the time, the the famous players of the time, would come and talk. And every three to four times a, a year, he would have uh, a session that had nothing to do with the cards. 
Because hmm. every one of these seminars wanted to play cards for a living. They wanted to be a gambler. <clears throat> and Mike would sit down and, you know, and talk about, this is how you live the life of a gambler. And you have to separate work from, from your <laughs> like home life. Fiction. <laughs> you have to separate the pieces. Just like if you worked a nine-to-five job, when you get home, you're not an accountant or whatever it is mm. that you're doing. <clears throat> and it was how to recognize, how to play, and how to live, and keeping them separate and balanced so that you have a normal life instead of, at the time, looking like a degenerate gambler. Because it was not necessarily, at the time, a, uh, a favorable profession to have. Yeah. Well, as Brett Maverick says, stick to your own game. Well, and, <clears throat> and it's not gambling. It's the difference between gambling and gaming. Well, if you wanted to be, if you want to be an elite poker player, then you have to have the skill to mitigate the variance that luck provides, uh, and it, and that's a lot of discipline that's required to accomplish that. I think maybe I told you the story once upon a time. When I was 13 years old, uh -huh. I accompanied my parents on a trip back east. We went to New Jersey, uh, where my dad had arranged to play gin rummy with the national gin rummy champion. The guy was a professional gin rummy player, the best in the, best in the United States. Right. And, of course, the guy just whipped my dad's butt <laughs> every game, right? right. And he said, hey, kids, you want to play some gin rummy? And I said, sure. And I sat down, and I beat his ass so bad, game after game after game, and he got mad. He was infuriated. Why is this 13-year-old kid defeating him on every game? Because you weren't playing as expected. That's right. Yeah. He finally figured out why he was losing to me. Because he was regarding me as if I were a professional gin rummy player. Right. And so he was anticipating me doing things, why I discarded this, why I took that. None of it made sense. Made sense. Um, uh, the person that got me into poker, who's long since passed, um, was taking lessons from one of the most famous players of all time, Chip Reese, mm -hmm. uh, considered one of the best players ever. Uh, and Chip was a hustler, and he was running a poker school out of his garage in the marina. Good for him. <clears throat> and my friend Howard um, would do just fine at high-stakes games. But when he would play with me in a 3-6 or a lower-stake game, he'd get his ass handed to him. And he could never figure out why. And he was approaching the game as if everyone knew what they were doing. That's right. And the truth is, pretty much nobody did. That's except right. him. And that's why he messed up. Yeah, because he would, he would make a play that in a, in a high-stakes game would get respected and it would, people would act in the manner that he wanted. <coughs> but the schmuck with an ace-four would call with a naked ace and beat him. Yeah. Because he didn't know any better. The key to, to uh, making poker money is uh, to lose less. And that is, <laughs> that is one of Montero's mantra. It's, it's the honest to God truth. And I've... Uh, I become a pretty uh, proficient poker player, and and it, it that works for me. Like if you're on a losing streak, and it happens, and it doesn't matter how good you are, yeah, 
sometimes the cards don't come, you never hit your draws, or you ju- you can't get someone off a hand. And they, you know, and they beat. They, yeah. They, they, so instead of losing, you know, a, an S load of money right. on uh, last Thursday night, <laughs> I ended up losing 30 bucks. And, and that's the honest to God truth, because I was down, so I'm thinking, okay. Okay, I got to regroup. Bah, 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 bah. And you, you backed off and, and tightened your range. Yes, yes. And, you know, and that's and that's the key to these professionals who make a living at playing poker. Is to reduce their losses. Yeah, they can't, they can't afford to lose a bunch of times, <laughs> you know. They can't afford it. But that's why they build that bankroll. Right. And then, and then that, you know, they, they can afford a certain number of losses. But it's like, man, you know, right. and and some guys, some guys have just found themselves in a hole where they can't get out of the damn yeah. thing. Uh, one, um, a good portion of one of the those seminars I mentioned that Mike Carroll would give yeah. on living the life of a gambler, uh, he'd have uh, Skolansky come and talk. You know, getting the best of it, his book, um, and then there was a whole twenty or thirty minute section on how to recognize when it's time to get the get the hell off the table and right. go the frick off. And it's true. And it's true. And you you got to know that. And see, I, not one to boast, I'm pretty good at doing that. Since I was 15 and right. a half years old playing craps in Reno, Nevada, and Baccarat, I learned, man, you don't try to win it back. Ever. No, no. Never. never chase it. No. Um, when I, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was a, a home game. It was a 5-10. Uh, fixed bet home game uh, in the in the valley, and my mentors brought me to this game for a reason. They didn't tell me ahead of time. It's just go and play. It's the same crap you all you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the end of the evening on the way home, they go, "Okay, so why did we take you?" And I go, "Well, the host is nuts." Yeah. He goes, "No, he's not nuts. He's desperate. Uh-huh. And this is what we want you to recognize. Yeah, he's an HVAC." Contractor, and he's in to about he's in for about 120 in credit card debt. Ooh, Ooh. this is what 80. This is 81. Oh. Well, man, that's when that was a hell of a lot of money. Listen, and a, he's a buck sitting 20, down a buck twenty in credit card debt is still a lot oh, today. Hell. Yeah, and so he's trying to get back no, that 120 no, no, in a 510 no. on a Friday night. Yeah, you're dead. Yeah, you're dead. And they're 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 smacking me upside the head. If you don't learn. That lesson, you're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I have the. And then they pushed you out of the car naked. No, they did not. (laughs) There's a uh, fellow in San Diego who is a. uh, His expertise is dealing with people who are uh, gambling addicts. And uh, we did a a book together that never came out because the publisher went sideways somewhere. But it was fascinating, all the research material he had on uh, people who were just. (laughs) Who, who keep chasing it, you know, or just have these myths in their mind that right. yeah, know, but th- th- luck's going to change. But those those are addicts. Yeah. Those are addicts, and that's something I can't relate to. I am certainly not a gambling addict. I don't need to freaking no. gamble. And by the way, I don't consider playing cards gambling. If I did, I wouldn't play. You're a gamer, not I a gambler. I w- would but. not. No, it, it is. Listen, I, I'm better than most, um, not as good as many, but... Uh, and getting better, and you consistently get better, or stop playing. Right. <laughs> Period. Yeah. Period. Yeah. There's the whole thing of, of people chasing, chasing their winnings, or lo- chasing their losses, or whatever. You know, it's like, 
It's, it's getting get the, the perfect word was that desperation. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and I've seen it. And, by the way, uh, by the way, women can smell it, and fellow poker players can, can smell, smell it. it. Desperation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yum yum. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know you want them to suck out on you mm -hmm. during the session. Yeah, of course, because then they'll they'll pour more money into yes. it. Oh, yeah. yes. and thinking that they're going to hit. They'll lose twice as much. Yeah. Yeah, it's a br it's brutal, man. But you know, life is brutal. But what do we have to compare it to? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Consider the alternatives. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, uh, Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live with the Light of Blouse on AllenRadioLive.com. Far between sundown's finish and midnight's broken toe. We ducked inside the doorways, thunder went crashing As majestic bells of bolts struck shadows in the sounds Seeming to be the chimes of freedom flashing Flashing for the warriors Whose strength is not to fight Flashing for the refugees On the unarmed road of flight And for each and every underdog soldier in the night And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing Through the city's melted furnace Unexpectedly we watched With faces hidden as the walls were tightening As the echo of the wedding bells Before the blowing rain Dissolved into the bells of the lightning Tolling for the rebel Tolling for the rake Tolling for the luckless They are abandoned and forsaked Tolling for the outcast Burning constantly at stake And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing Through the mad, mystic hammering Of the wild, ripping hail The sky cracked its palms in naked wonder As the clinging of the church bells Blew far into the breeze Leaving only bells of lightning and its thunder Striking for the gentle, striking for the kind, striking for the guardians and protectors of the mind. And the poet and the painter far behind his rightful time. And we gazed upon 
The times of freedom flashing In the wild cathedral evening The rain unraveled tales For the disrobed faceless forms of no position Tolling for the tongues With no place to bring their thoughts All down in taking for granted situations Tolling for the deaf and blind Tolling for the mute For the mistreated maidless mother The mistitled prostitute For the misdemeanor outlaw Chained and cheated by pursuit And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing Even though a cloud's white curtain In a far-off corner flared And the hypnotic splattered mist Was slowly lifting Electric light still struck like arrows Fired but for the ones Condemned to drift Or else be kept from drifting Tolling for the searching ones On their speechless seeking trail For the lonesome hearted lovers With too personal a tale And for each unharmful gentle soul Misplaced inside a jail And we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing Starry-eyed and laughing As I recall when we were caught Trapped by no track of ours For the hang suspended As we listened one last time And we watched with one last look Spellbound and swallowed Till the tolling ended Tolling for the aching Whose wounds cannot be nursed For the countless confused accused Misused strung out ones and worse And for every hung up person In the whole wide universe And we gazed upon The chimes of freedom flashing (laughs) 